Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 1 to verse 17. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Behold, a leper came to him and bowed down to him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, entreating him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, let it be done to you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very hour. And when Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and waited on him. And when evening had come, they brought him to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Last week we saw and concluded with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus concluded the Sermon on the Mount, it says that the people were absolutely astonished at his sermon. We're told at the end of chapter 7 they were astonished because Jesus was one who taught with authority unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Taught as one who understood that he was the very God in their presence. His word was truth. And therefore, and every preacher of truth ought to view himself in this regard. That they teach with authority because they are the Lord's spokesman. People were amazed. At this point, great multitudes were still falling, and he came, comes off the mountain, we're told. And at this point, there's not this uh, <clears throat> filtering out of the multitudes. Later on, we'll see that Jesus begins to do when he lays out the cost of discipleship that some aren't willing to uh, follow, or when he talks about certain doctrines of who he is, and he begins to weed them out that way, when he talks about that you got to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and some people didn't understand that, and they withdrew from him. But at this point, great multitudes were following Jesus because of what he said. 
we saw in Matthew chapter 4 that when Jesus left Nazareth, that he went to Galilee. And we're told that he will come and he will settle in Capernaum, which was by the Sea of Galilee. Now let me just remind us as we begin to look at the healings of Jesus, and we're going to look at three healings today. What was the purpose of or the significance of Jesus' healing ministry? Well, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 4 and take a look at verses 12 through 17, and you'll see just the significance of what's happening uh, in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It says, Now when he had heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and to those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. We see that Jesus will come to Capernaum to fulfill prophecy. And remember, the Galilee was a very uh, <clears throat> was an area geographically that people did not think of. It was a more like a slum area. Uh, <clears throat> people looked those at least in Judea looked upon the Galileans in a very uh, negative way. Did not have respect for them. It's always not unusual that the Lord will go to the areas that you least suspect. At least from our vantage point, we may understand that, but from the mindset of those in that time period, no, they expected the Messiah to be one who would come in great pomp and glory, destroying all the enemies of Israel. That's not how the Messiah came. He goes to these far regions. He goes to these areas that people look down upon these people. And there it says those who sat in darkness, those who had no hope. Uh, Galilee of the Gentiles. The Gentile. It was a very Gentile, heavily populated area uh, in, in Israel. And yet Jesus will come and he will bring great light through his Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to bring great light in his healing ministry. He is the Messiah. Now, something of Jesus' healing ministry, as we take a look today, as we read and and look at these various healings that Jesus engaged in, I want you to keep in the back of your mind what goes on today in so-called healing ministries. And see that there's a far cry of what goes on today and what is touted as healings as opposed, as opposed to what Jesus did. First of all, as we look through there, we're going to ask a question. Did Jesus announce where he was going, that he was going to have a healing ministry at Capernaum? Did he send out uh, his disciples to go tell everybody, come over to Capernaum because we're going to heal somebody today? No. Did he request donations to his ministry when he healed them? Send me money. 
my, my disciples would go out and take up offerings among the people. Did he do that? No, he didn't do that. What was the, magnifi- uh, the magnitude of his healings? The magnitude of his healings was immense. Immense as we're going to take it to see what Jesus was able to do. That no one today in healing that can establish anything remotely what Jesus did. So, why did Jesus engage in this kind of healing ministry? He comes off giving his, his great Sermon on the Mount. But what was the purpose of his miracles and his signs and wonders? Well, turn with me over to Acts chapter 2. We get a glimpse of this that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost later. Here's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost in his sermon, starting at Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as yourselves know. Peter will mention this. He'll mention that Jesus was attested, being the Messiah, by what he did. He came with great signs and wonders. And in light of that, Peter says, if you look over in Acts chapter 2, that he says it is time for people to repent. We need to repent in light of the fact of who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. Step ahead a little bit in Matthew, though we'll get to it in several weeks. Look at Matthew chapter 11. I'll just touch on it. Look at Matthew 11, verses 1 through 6. And it came about that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John in prison heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Essentially, we'll develop that more when we get to Matthew 11. But what Jesus is indicating, he is the Messiah, the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would come bringing great light, not only what he taught, the doctrines that he taught, but he would bring great light. And notice what Jesus said to John, who had been arrested by Herod, doubting somewhat. And he says, well, John, do not all these miracles demonstrate to you that I am the Messiah? So all of these men, this healing ministry, what was the focus of the healing ministry of Jesus? I am the Messiah. I am the promised one. I am the only hope for mankind. And all that I do is to draw attention to myself, to what I say, and that you may repent of your sins and have faith in me. That's what all the healing ministry is about. Now, sometimes we don't stop to think of the level of Jesus' healing ministry. We're told in our passage in Matthew 8 that a leper comes 
and begs Jesus to heal him. Now, when we read this, we don't. What, what I want to accomplish here somewhat is to show you the magnitude of leprosy. We just read that and says, "Okay, Jesus healed the leper." Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about leprosy. You know what leprosy is? You know, you know what it does to the human body? It begins with great pains in certain areas of your body. The skin begins to lose its color. It becomes thick, glossy. It becomes scaly. In fact, the name is scaly for uh, a leprosy. And as these spots become thickened, uh, they become dirty sores develop. Ulcers begin to form at these particular places on the human body. And they develop because of the poor blood supply to these areas. It can be very painful. The skin around the ears and the eyes begin to bunch up together. Uh, deep fissures come in. The body it swells around the eyes and around the ears. And the face begins to resemble that of a lion and, uh, and how it looks. The fingers begin to drop off or they're absorbed back into the body. The toes begin to drop off. Uh, you begin to lose things. person were to grab a hold of you, an arm, part of an arm could come off. This is what it was like. Not only was the sight of a leper horrific, you could smell a leper from a distance. The disease created an odor that was very foul. And so you knew that a leper was approaching and the disease, it affected the larynx. And therefore, there was a, gra a real, uh, your voice became real gritty and hoarse, and, and you could always tell a leper. So you could, you, could, you could feel them, you could see them, you could hear the leper in their raspy voice. And in biblical times, there was virtually no cure for leprosy. Now, in the Old Testament, there were some that healed uh, but it was very far and few between of anybody being healed of leprosy. Uh, it did occur on certain occasions, and when it did, uh, we know from the Old Testament that if you were, get, were spotted with having uh, leprous skin, that the priest would determine that. You, and if you had leprosy, if the priest determined you had leprosy, uh, then you were not allowed to go and perform sacrifices. You were quarantined, uh, and you were set apart because you were ceremonially unclean. And there were occasions when, if you could prove to the priest that the leprosy had left, then the, then the priest would declare you clean, and you could be restored uh, under this. And that's what we see Jesus talks about when he heals this man. He will tell them to go back and to the priest and have the priest declare him clean so that he can engage in the sacrificial system, which was very important, of course, uh, to be able to perform the sacrifices in the Old Testament. So, today, leprosy can be treated. The cause of leprosy is a bacteria. And they use some uh, potent antibiotics to deal with leprosy today. If you catch it early on, uh, it can, before it begins to have permanent damage to your body, uh, 
it can be dealt with. But keep in mind, in those time periods, there was no medicinal cure at all. So if a person was healed, they didn't know why they were healed of it, but rarely was anyone ever healed. So it is a horrendous disease. And just as I described it, imagine you having that disease yourself and how horrific, or a loved one had that disease, what it would be like. This is the man who would come to Jesus, and usually the people were told elsewhere in the story in Luke 17 that a bunch of lepers, ten lepers, would request Jesus to heal them, but they stood a distance from people. Because people didn't want to see how horrific that was. They didn't want to smell the foul smell. And so we learned from Luke 17 that Jesus would heal some lepers from a distance. Now, the rabbis of the time virtually viewed leprosy. Anybody being healed of leprosy was tantamount to almost being raised from the dead because, as I said, virtually no one was ever healed once you contracted leprosy. Now, Luke's version of it is always helpful. We're going to be going to other synoptic gospels to get the full picture of what happens here because it's important. Luke's version states that the man that came to Jesus, Luke says, being the physician that he was, says he was full of leprosy, meaning he was in the advanced stages. He was in the stages where it was pretty ugly. He probably lost certain parts of his body already because that's what an advanced stage of leprosy does. It is that kind of man who doesn't stand from a distance, this leper, for whatever reason, believed that Jesus could heal him. This man comes to Jesus and falls down on his face before Jesus. And you can imagine as Jesus was going, he was on his way to Capernaum uh, there, and with the people and the disciples, and imagine this leper with an advanced stage coming up. To Jesus and falling down. And what does he ask? He says, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, already the leper believes that Jesus has the power to cleanse him, but there's not a whole lot of evidence why the man would have believed that Jesus would have possessed that power, but he believes that he can. And so, what we see here, we're told. In Mark's version of of this incident, that Jesus, it says, look upon him with great compassion. So when this person, the advanced stage, what he is, falls on his face, if you can, Jesus, will you heal me? And Jesus, when he says he moved with compassion, pitied the man, this poor creature, where there's no hope of basically being healed at that point from a human perspective, begs for help. And Jesus has compassion on him. And we're told that Jesus merely touched the man, and he was healed instantaneously, the Scripture says. Now, that's what I want to bring to your attention. Now, I've told you and described to you what leprosy is and what it does to the human body, losing limbs, everything about it, these ulcers. The moment Jesus touched him, 
everything was restored. Like this. I know of no healings like that that goes on today. All people come walking up on a stage with a cane or something like that or got a back disorder. But I've yet to see anybody that has this kind of uh, human condition being healed instantaneously. So everybody could see it. You know that we see uh, in the instance where... um, Imagine what that would have been like. We're going to see how that impacted this this particular leper when Jesus instantaneously healed him. Um, Mark's version, turn over to Mark's version. It brings out some things I think that are significant here. Look at Mark 1, verse 43. Now, when Jesus healed this man instantaneously... We're told in verse 43, it says, And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a testimony to them. Let's stop right there. Remember I told you in the, in the, in the Mosaic Law, when you were detected by a priest... Being a leper, you were declared unclean and you couldn't participate in the sacrificial system, which was vital to come and confess your sins, to have an atonement for your sins. They couldn't do that. So he says, go show yourself to the priest that you are now clean. Imagine that impact on those priests when this guy at this level comes to them and he's completely healed. Now, why did Jesus sternly warn them? Don't tell anybody. Well, I think we get a clue to that. Matthew doesn't delve into it, but Mark does. Look at verse 45, Mark 1:45. But when he went out, he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about it to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and that they were coming to him from everywhere. So what Jesus was concerned about was the magnitude of his healing was such, and, and it's under, we're not condoning what this man did when Jesus says, don't go tell anybody. But the reason he said don't tell anybody was, as Mark brings out, the fact that when he began to tell everybody, then everybody in the area, multitudes of people are going to just gather to Jesus, we learn elsewhere in some of the uh, healing ministries of Jesus uh, that the crowds was of such magnitude that the disciples couldn't even get to their own house because it was that the city was packed with people and they couldn't, they couldn't work their way into their own uh, residence because everybody was there wanting to be healed. Hey, you heal a, a leper who was in advanced stages of leprosy, do you think everybody that has any kind of illness will want to come to the miracle worker, of course. And so, Jesus performs uh, this great miracle to this man who had faith in Jesus and who came to Jesus begging for mercy, and he found mercy. If you want mercy, you come to Jesus. He is the one who can dispense mercy. 
He is the one who's compassionate. Well, not only does Jesus heal this leper, but he moves on in our story about a centurion. Take a look there in our text. He comes into the city of Capernaum. Verse 5, And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and treated him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. Now, I want you to keep your hand in Matthew 8, but we're going to have to take a look at Luke's version because Luke's version brings out some very important aspects of this healing that Matthew does not tell us. So turn over to Matthew 7 and look at verses 1 through 10. Now keep your hand there in Luke, but let's, let me read the Matthew a little bit further. A centurion came to him and treated him, saying, Lord, my servant is living paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy of you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to another slave do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not seen such great faith with anyone in Israel. Now when you read this passage in Matthew, you get the impression, just by reading it, that the centurion came to Jesus personally, don't you? That's the impression that you get. Well, take a look at Luke's version, though. Look at verses 1 through 10. When he had completed all of his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and other come, and he comes, and my slave do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and turned and said to the multitude, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now, first of all, we know from Luke's version, the centurion never personally went to see Jesus. Is there a contradiction between Matthew and Luke? No. If you send a delegation on your behalf, you come to him. That's what the centurion did. That tells us about some centurion once we learn something more about him. He did not see himself personally worthy to come into the very presence of Jesus. Even though it says that those whom the centurion sent, those Jewish elders, they said he was worthy. Now what Matthew doesn't bring out at all 
And I think you can appreciate why Luke's version is important here. What Luke brings out is these Jewish elders are speaking on behalf of the centurion. says, this man is worthy of you, Jesus, to consider. Though he doesn't himself think he's worthy. I mean, he helps. He loves the Jewish nation. He helped build our synagogue. Now, understand something about a centurion. He's a Roman officer. The Roman armies have occupied Israel. Not by force. By force they've occupied Israel. They were hated. The Romans were hated by the fact that they had imposed themselves upon Israel. And... And then the whole movement of the zealots, you've heard about the zealots. The zealots were a, a uh, radical group who sought to overthrow the Roman occupation by force. So the Jewish people looked at the Romans with disgust, with anger, and with resentment. And yet you find this centurion who the Jewish elders say loves us. Loves our nation. He helped build our synagogue. Tells us something about the character of the centurion, doesn't it? Matthew doesn't even bring it out, but Luke does. Here's another thing. We're told uh, in the Matthew 8, it says, uh, verse 5 here, it says, in Matthew 8, verse 6, it says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. Now, <clears throat> Matthew 8 says that word there for my servant actually literally says my boy lies at home suffering great pain. Now the thing about it is you have the centurion saying my boy is in great pain. Will you help him? Now in this regard we're told that in Luke 2 Turn over to Luke 2, or Luke 7, verse 2. It says, now we're talking about the same incident, all right? It's the same story, just from Luke's vantage point. Verse 2 of Luke 7 says, And a certain centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. Now the word there for slave is a different Greek word than what's used over in Matthew. The word over in Matthew is the Greek word pais. Meaning, child, son. Here, the Greek word is doulos, meaning it's the common word for a slave. So what do we have here? Is he, was it his son, or was it his slave? Well, he was a slave, but the centurion looked upon him as his own son. That tells you about the character of the centurion. He was an actual slave, but the centurion viewed him as his own family. And so, and then actually in Luke 7, verse 7, we're told, For this reason I did not come and consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant. Now the centurion uses the word pious, my son, my boy, will be healed. So he says, he's a, he's a slave, but he's my boy. He loved him that much. Now, you understand this. This reveals a lot about the centurion. 
Here was a, a Roman officer, part of an army that had forced its way upon Israel, and yet here was an officer who loved the Jewish people, helped build their synagogues, viewed a slave that he had, not just as a common slave, views this slave as his own son. Tells you something about the centurion. Who thought himself unworthy, unworthy to come before Jesus. Now, this, you know, when it says, when the centurion, he is a Gentile. He's a Roman, so he's a Gentile. And the fact that he's a Gentile is no minor thing to this story at all. He's a Roman uh, officer. Here was a man who was a foreigner, yet he loved them. He loved these Jewish people. But here's the thing. The Jews normally would have no intimate contact with Gentiles. In fact, they would not go into the very presence or the residence of a Gentile because to do so would be viewed as being unclean. To go into the residence of a Gentile. Now we'll mention several passages that bring this out. First of all, turn with me to, to John 18, look at verse 28. Now this shows you the attitude that people had, that Jews had, about the Gentiles. Now Jesus has been convicted by the Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin which was the ruling body of Israel. The Jewish authoritative body in Jerusalem. They've convicted Jesus in a mock trial who sought to gather false witnesses, mind you, against Jesus. They hated Jesus with a passion. They were determined to kill Jesus. And so the trial was held at night, which was forbidden to be held at night. They were going to gather false witnesses, which were forbidden by the law of Moses. Everything they did about that trial was ungodly, wicked. Now, when they, they uh, convict Jesus, they bring him to Pilate. Look what it says in verse 28. But they led Jesus, therefore, from Caiaphas to the praetorium, that is the, uh, the government resident house of Pilate. And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium in order that they might not be defiled, but eat the Passover. Now, if there was ever a bunch of hypocrites, here they were. Here they were, had unjustly and unwickedly convicted Jesus and <clears throat> violated the law of Moses in multiple areas, and yet they come into the praetorium and say, we don't want to go there because we'll be ceremonially defiled. We can't do the Passover. See the hypocrisy? See why Jesus uh, viewed them with such disdain and says, you are... You are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside. You stand on the street corners and you pray to be seen of men. Uh, you give alms to be seen of men doing these things. And you don't want to be seen by going into the praetorium because you'll be ceremonially uh, un unclean. But being ceremonially unclean, they were wicked. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 10 to show you that it was the custom of the Jews not to socialize with Gentiles. Look at what Acts 10 says, verse 28. When we have Cornelius, remember, who is a Gentile, asking for Peter 
to come to Caesarea. But look at Acts chapter 10, and look at verse 28. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Then you look at Acts, I mean, Acts 11, look at verses 1 and 2. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles who had received the word of God, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to an uncircumcised man and ate with them. What were you thinking, Peter? Of course, we know when Cornelius asked, sent a delegation to come to Caesarea, Peter was up on his housetop, remember, and it had this vision of God bringing these animals and, and saying, Eat. And Peter saying, Look, I, I can't do that. It's against the Mosaic law for me to eat unclean animals. And then God says, What I have declared clean, don't you declare unclean. And on his way to Caesarea, Peter figures it out, we are told. That the vision was all about the Gentiles being unclean and normally would have nothing to do with them. So, in this instance, when this centurion sent a delegation, let's go back to Luke 7. When this delegation from the centurion sent to Jesus... uh, Concerning his slave whom he loved, we are told in Luke 7, look at verses 7 and 9. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. Just say the word, Jesus. Now, all the other healings we're going to say Jesus touches people. He lays his hand on them to heal them. This centurion says, Jesus, I believe you can heal him. And you don't even have to come and defile yourself by coming into the presence of the Gentile. Just tell me, Jesus. I believe you can heal him. And so it says, that is when Jesus says, look, I, in all my ministry in Israel, I've never seen such faith like this. I've never seen faith of this magnitude in all of Israel, at all, that there would be someone who would have this kind of faith in me. Now, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 8. Matthew brings out something that Luke doesn't, even though the detail of Luke is more than Matthew. At least Matthew brings this out. Take a look at Matthew 8, verse 11 to 13. When Jesus perceives this great faith among this Gentile man, this centurion, we are told, verse 11, And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Let's stop right there. Jesus says, this centurion who's a Gentile, he is an example of what's going to happen later on when there be great numbers of Gentiles coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says they're going to come from the east and the west. They're going to come from all kinds of places. 
And it says, they will recline at the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, what's that mean, the table of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They were the patriarchs. When you want to talk about the Jewish nation and the influence of the patriarchs, three names were always mentioned. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the fathers of Israel. They, they are the symbols of the nation of Israel, the covenant nation of God. Those to whom the Bible says the covenants of promise were given to them, Paul says in Romans. To the Jews were given the oracles of God. They weren't given. They weren't given at all to the Gentiles. They were given to, they were given to the Jewish people. Now, in this regard, having been given to the Jewish people, the implication here that Jesus is saying, even before the day of Pentecost, this is way before Jesus has been crucified, before his resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus is saying, my people are going to be one. They will be constituted by Jews and Gentiles. Now, imagine the significance of what Jesus has said here. Dispensationalists ought to take heed here, because in dispensationalism, you, the true definition of a dispensationalist is the fact that you maintain a distinction between the Jewish people and the Gentiles. They will forever be a distinct people with different purposes. That's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says they're going to be one people, and the Gentiles are going to come into the kingdom of heaven with the Jewish people. And this centurion is a hallmark. He is an example of what's going to take place on a great magnitude. Now Jesus, not only talking about the greatness of this centurion, the faith that he had, this Gentile had a faith that the Jewish people didn't have. He's a hero to Jesus. But Jesus says in verse 12 of Matthew 8, he says, The sons of the kingdom, who are the sons of the kingdom? The Jewish nation. All these people who thought themselves above the Gentiles, it says that they will be cast into the outer darkness, where there will be gnashing of teeth. The Jews, these sons of the kingdom, these sons of the kingdom, were those who did not believe Jesus as the Messiah. Now, remember I told you, think, go back to Matthew 7, look at verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow uh, gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Remember I told you that it's not talking about what the state of affairs is going to be at the end of the world. It's talking about what was indicative of the ministry under Jesus at that time. Many of the Jews refused to believe in Jesus. Those are the people that Jesus is talking about, sons of the kingdom, who will not believe in him. You know, in this regard... Those who don't believe in him. Just think about that. Let me ask you something. Well, we're told, first of all, let me give you uh, something else about the Jewish people. We're told in John 1.11 that Jesus came to his own, and his own received him not. 
What do you mean by that? He came to his Jewish people, his nation. He is the Messiah. And what was the reception? They didn't accept it. His own people didn't accept it. That's why Jesus says the sons of the kingdom will be cast in the outer darkness. But this centurion, this Roman, he's indicative of what it's going to be like of all those who come to me. First Thessalonians, take a look at First Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verses 14 and 15. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now what does Paul mean there? He's saying all this trouble, all the, the fact what the Jews did as a bulk, as a, as a group, as a whole to Jesus by not receiving the Messiah and murdering the Son of God, they have cast us out everywhere I've gone, study the book of Acts. Who are those who are always giving trouble to Paul? It was the Jews. It was the unbelieving Jews that were always following Paul from city to city, harassing him. To the point that Paul won't go into the synagogues anymore. He says, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And then he says, they are always causing us trouble. And he says, they have filled up the wrath of God to the utmost. Now, when Paul is writing here, we're getting close to 70 A.D. When the wrath of God will come upon the Jewish nation. And when God will destroy the covenant nation. And Jerusalem will cease to exist. They will be leveled to the ground. So Jesus is saying, in this healing, so what we need to understand in this healing of the centurion, there's a lot going on here. This man felt unworthy, but he's the most worthy of them all, isn't he? He, he even respected Jesus. Then he wanted to have Jesus be come and be defiled, as it were, to come in his presence. And yet, he has the faith to believe that no one else in Israel had this kind of faith. Just say the word, Jesus. Think about that. Just say the word. And Jesus says, be it done to you as you according to your faith. And when that, when that group that was sent as a delegation to Jesus, to Jesus on behalf of the centurion, when they came back, they found the slave boy whom the centurion loved. They found him completely healed. There's a lot we can learn from this. Not only... Uh, who is in the kingdom of God? What constitutes the church? You've grown up in a Christian home? You had parents raise you as Christians? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? See, the whole thing here is what's marvelous in Jesus' sight is that someone is here's someone who didn't have all of these privileges. Grow up in a Christian home is a great privilege. Sometimes those who are uh, those who are in those Christian homes don't appreciate it. But to grow up in a home where your parents love the Lord, who seek to raise you according to the Scriptures, that's no minor thing at all. Imagine being in a home where the parents were um, abusive, where a father was a drunkard, 
where he abused the sons. Imagine where they could care less. You know, they, they don't care what goes on with you. And they let you live your life according to the world. And you, and you reap all kinds of havoc because of that. It could have easily been that. To grow up in a home, a Christian home, to be among the people of God in that sense is a privilege. But with great privilege comes great responsibility. Don't be like the, the Jewish nation who didn't believe Jesus who though they were sons of the kingdom, will find themselves in hell because they didn't believe. They didn't bear fruit. As we talked about last week, what it means to uh, bear fruit unto the Lord. Are you seeking to live under the Lordship of Christ? The point here is, do you have the faith of the same magnitude that this centurion had? You know, he believed in Jesus of that magnitude that he didn't have to show up to heal someone. Just say it, Jesus. That's an incredible faith. To have a faith that saves us from our sins, we've got to have this confidence that Jesus really is the Savior of sinners. And that believing in Him, you really do have eternal life. Not maybe, but you do. The whole section, of this, this section in Matthew 8 will close with Jesus' going into Capernaum to Peter's household. And it says that Peter, uh, his mother-in-law, was sick with fever. She was about to die. And uh, we learned something about Peter. First of all, we see that uh, his mother-in-law was living with him. Uh, mother-in-law means he was married. As I say, the first pope was married. I'm just throwing it out because Romanism looks to Peter as the pope. Uh, the first pope, although they say, I won't get into that, I'll talk to you about lunch about that, that what it believes. But here, uh, Peter was married. In fact, he took his wife. His wife went on some of the journeys. Remember, Paul says, do I not have a right to take a wife with me as does Cephas, Peter? He takes his wife with him. I have that right, you know, but I, I'm not married. And, and we have this healing here. Jesus just... Uh, Goes in. Uh, Peter is living in Capernaum. We know Jesus is, settles in Capernaum. And he just touches the mother who was with great fever. No telling what she had, but she had a fever that was almost to the point of death. Healed instantaneously. And it says she gets up and begins to wait on him. <laughs> Can you imagine the, the magnitude of this? She is lying, for all practical purposes, dying. Jesus just touches her. She gets up and says, oh, I think I'll go get dinner for everybody. That's what she does. As a result of that, we're told in Matthew 8, now the word's gotten out. What has Jesus done? He's healed this leper. This grotesque figure heals him instantaneously. And he has faith. He heals this centurion's slave but not, by not even being president, then he goes in and just touches someone, and she's healed from this great fever. And we're told in our Matthew 8 passage, as it closes, it says, <clears throat> When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were ill, in order that was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He 
<clears throat> took upon our in infirmities and carried away our diseases. You see, it was part and parcel with Jesus' ministry as the Messiah to be the great miracle worker. That there was nothing that Jesus couldn't do. No one can even approach what Jesus has done in his healing ministry. It was all to prove that he was the Messiah. Do you believe in me? Do you believe that I am the Son of God sent to save you from your sins? Not any disease too great for me. So everybody was flocking to him. Everybody was flocking to him. Wasn't anybody too ill that he couldn't treat. Touch him. One thing you ought to learn from these stories of the healing ministries, of the power of God. Think about the power of God. Especially with this leper. As grotesque as he was, instantaneously made clean, limbs restored, probably. That's the magnitude of the power of God. That's what Jesus possesses. That's who we're dealing with. We're not dealing with an ordinary person. Jesus will heal all these people of their infirmities and demon possession. Eventually raise them from the dead to prove that he's the Messiah. Do we have the faith like that centurion? Do we have the faith of leper who believes that Jesus can heal us? Jesus can deal with our problems. He, he won't just deal with our physical problems. Jesus can deal with any problem that we have. That's why the scripture says, cast all your care upon Jesus for he cares for you. Why wouldn't I, we may not be in the age of miracles as it was then, but Jesus says, is, is there anything that I can't do for my people? Cast all your anxieties upon me, and I'll take care of them. This is who we're dealing with. This is what we ought to learn from this. Let's pray.